So Luke 1 and verse 39. Let's hear what the Spirit has to say to his church this morning. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfilment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Our Father God, we praise you that you are a God who speaks that we don't have to stumble around in the dark, hoping uh, that we've got hold of the truth about this world, hoping that we've got some glimpse uh, of what uh, our God might be like. But instead, you have spoken. And we now have uh, in our hands uh, these scriptures, this written word of God. And so we pray that the same spirit who inspired the words we've just read uh, would now open our eyes, that we might see the truth within Uh, Behold its beauty and rejoice to know our Saviour. This we ask, therefore, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, we've been dotting around a little bit over the last few weeks. Uh, And so if you've been here for at least three or four weeks in a row, you'll know that we started with some Psalms and we're suddenly in Luke's Gospel. Now, there was no plan to that, I'll be honest. We were going to do a series in the Psalms and then look a little bit at Luke, uh, but they've got to kind of merge together. But not at all to my, um, or not at all with my intention, there's a bit of a theme, I think, developing, a bit of a theme that that links together um, Psalm 44, where we started, and Luke 1. They they all, to a certain extent, speak about what it's meant to feel like to, to be a Christian. They all speak to the kind of, I suppose, emotions, you might call it, that we're meant to experience, and I think are particularly apt to those of us who are Christians in the UK in the early 21st century. Uh, Psalm 44, we looked at two or three weeks ago, is a psalm in many ways of great disappointment, that the psalmists are crying out, Lord, we're trying to be faithful, but nothing's happening. Uh, We've heard of the great things you've done in the past, but we don't see anything happening today. Just this morning over breakfast, my eldest daughter said, we'd we'd read the story about, you know, the pot that never runs out of oil in the Old Testament with Elijah and Elisha. She said, why do we never see things like that happening today, Daddy? Have you ever asked that question? Why? We read these miracles in the Bible, but actually we don't see that. When was the last time you saw someone walking on water? When was the last time someone prayed and your bottle of oil you know, next to the cooker never ran out? It just doesn't happen, does it? 
And Psalm 44 was a prayer in some sense of holy dissatisfaction. Lord, I, I want to see you at work, but we're not seeing it. So it ended by calling God to awake, to literally wake up. And we spoke about that the need, in, in some senses, for Christians at a time in the UK when we don't see lots of people coming to faith, to have a, almost a sense of dissatisfaction. Not grumbling against God, not anger, but, Lord, awake, show your glory again, save people, like you, like you have done at times in the past. And in order to have that kind of holy dissatisfaction, as we looked at Luke 1 last week and compared the, the stories of Mary... Uh, who's told that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, and Zechariah, who's going to be the father of John the Baptist, we saw that Mary had confidence, if you look up at chapter 1 and verse 37, just above where we read today, that nothing was impossible for God. See that, Luke 1 verse 37? Nothing will be impossible with God. That's the words of Gabriel, and Mary believes it. So last week we talked about the idea that you're met, as alongside this dissatisfaction, we're meant to have expectation, trust that God really can act. We don't just give up, hunker down, go into our little holy huddle and expect nothing ever to happen. No, we trust that God really can act. And as the story of Mary goes on, we see her, well, we see her respond, not just in quiet faith, but in joyful praise. I look down at verse 46. She burst into song. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. As we wait for God to come and act in power again, as we pray that one day he will, our waiting attitude is meant to be one of joyful praise. Now, we've not traced Luke's gospel all the way through, but just to get the story straight, uh, at this stage, Mary... Uh, has gone to visit her, well, probably cousin, certainly her relative, Elizabeth. Elizabeth's going to be the mother of John the Baptist. And for the first time, they meet. So in verses 39 through 45, which we're not going to spend really any more time on this morning, we, we just get the context. Mary arrives. She is, at this stage, just less than three months pregnant. If you put the different time stamps together that Luke gives us, um, she is newly pregnant. And Elizabeth, who's going to be John the Baptist's mum, is further down the line, about six months further down the line. Uh, so for the first time, John the Baptist and Jesus meet in the womb, as it were. John the Baptist is excited. You see, he leaps for joy, uh, even though he's not yet born. Uh, and when Elizabeth says to Mary, how, like, how blessed are you? She bursts into this song, this song of praise. And it's the song in verse 46 uh, through 56 that we're going to look at this morning. So let's dive in and look. Uh, at what's known as the Magnificat. You'll see a little title there, the Magnificat, which comes from the, the, the Latin uh, translation of the first line, my soul magnifies the Lord uh, for a long time uh, throughout most of the Middle Ages. The only way you could read the Bible was in Latin. So some of these songs have kept their Latin titles. So, so what do we see? Well, first of all, we see that worship and joy for the Christian go together. Okay, worship and joy go together. Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. To magnify someone is just to, to praise them, to worship them. And as Mary erupts into song, she does so not out of duty only, but out of delight. See verse 46 and 47, sit together. I, I worship the Lord and my spirit rejoices. She, she's full of joy. Now, that's the way the Christian faith is meant to be. It's not meant to be a, 
it's a, a list of sort of heavy duties that crush us, but that we feel that we ought to fulfill in order that God might let us into heaven at the end. No, the, the Christian faith is a delight. We were made for joy. And that's something I think, particularly if you're new to Christian things, might have passed you by, in part maybe because Christians can be a bit miserable, but, but ultimately because we, it's so easy to have this, this view of God as a bit of a killjoy. It's a view of God that, right back in the Garden of Eden, that Satan, the, the serpent, tried to sell to Adam and Eve. You know, as he slithered up to Eve and said, why don't you take that fruit, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He, he cast just the, just the thought into Eve's mind that actually... God was withholding something good from her. That there's a more pleasurable way of life, and the more pleasurable way of life, the more joyful way of life, is to ignore God. You ever tempted to think that way? That, that sin is fun and enjoyable, and living for God is, well, it's a bit dull, but it's the right thing to do. That's well, not at all how the Bible portrays things. Joy and worship, service of God, go together. And when Mary, as we'll see in a minute, reflects on all the great things that God has done and will do, her response is not just to give a, if you like, a doctrinally accurate statement. She doesn't just list a load of things that are true about God. No, she worships, here particularly, uh, by singing. Now, if you've been to a wedding, uh, you'll know that uh, at a certain stage of the meal, the groom, the husband, has to stand up and give a speech. And they tend to follow the same sort of pattern. So often they'll say thank you. The groom will say thank you for various things. That, you know, the people who've helped out um, get the wedding set up. He'll say he's delighted to join his new family, how much he likes his new in-laws. And most especially, he'll talk about how wonderful his bride is, his new wife is. Okay, that's, that's kind of the key element. If you're going to forget one thing, don't forget that. Now, have you ever heard a husband stand up and say, let me tell you a few things about my, my new wife. Uh, she is 26. She is five foot eight. Uh, she likes bacon sandwiches. She has three A-levels. She owns a house. Thank you. And then sit down. No, they stand up and they, they rap, don't they? You're the most beautiful woman in the world. You're so fun. I love spending time with them. You give me so much joy. A groom doesn't just give a factually accurate speech. He gives a speech that's full of joy. Similarly, a husband who, maybe a year or two down the line, comes home on the wedding anniversary uh, with a bunch of flowers and hands over the flowers to his wife. And when she says, oh, no, you shouldn't have done it. Why have you done this? It doesn't say, well, it's kind of my job, isn't it? No, you give the flowers because I delight in you. You guilty-looking husbands. Okay, we're not meant to say it's our job, are we? We say, we love you. I delight in you. I want to. Joy and service, worship, go together. Mary doesn't just recite the truth. She rejoices in it. And particularly here uh, in song. Now, it's worth saying, by the way, that, that duty itself is not a bad thing. If you don't feel the kind of joy that Mary exhibits here, that, that's not a reason, therefore, not to do the various tasks that God has given us. I remember speaking to someone, not at this church, another church, and I was asked, just asking him, why, why does he never come to the prayer meeting, or very rarely come to the prayer meeting? And he said to me, well, the thing is, on a, on a Wednesday evening, I often just don't feel it. Okay? I don't feel that I really want to speak to God, so it would be hypocritical to come along. Now, what he was experiencing was kind of half right. Okay? It's, he, he's right that, that he should want to feel like he speaks to God. He's right that he, his heart should be engaged, but he's also 
half wrong, maybe more than half wrong. Just because we don't feel something doesn't mean we don't obey. Uh, we might not feel full of joy, but that doesn't mean we don't sing the songs on a Sunday. Okay, we might not feel particularly close to God, but that doesn't mean we don't read his word and pray to him. Duty and delight are meant to go together. If the delight disappears, we don't ditch the duty. But here, the two are hand in hand. Mary is full of joy. And so she sings. Uh, Luke's gospel, at least the beginning of Luke's gospel, is full of songs. Four times we get songs uh, written out. We we, uh, started this morning with Psalm 100, uh, which is a a call to worship, where where the, the congregation are called to come into God's presence with singing. In the Bible, singing is a hugely important thing. It's the, one of the main ways we respond to what God has done for us. And the extraordinary thing here is, is Mary seems fairly impromptu to break into a, a hugely rich song. Okay, if, if you ever turned up at a prayer meeting and prayed a prayer like Mary does in, in verses 46 onwards, okay, is this the kind of language you've ever used in your own quiet times? Or perhaps if you've been gathered around the table as a family? Uh, it's, it's not for me. Now remember, Mary, you, know, you might think of Mary as a sort of great hero of the Bible. In many senses, she is. But at this stage, she's a young, she's not married yet, so she's likely a teenager. Uh, she's from a very humble background. She's not spent years in school and university. And yet she breaks into this incredibly rich song. Uh, it's a song that's actually absolutely saturated uh, with Scripture. Uh, that's likely how she can pray like this. Although this is her personal prayer, her personal song, it is absolutely peppered with references from the Old Testament. Uh, the, the main background to her song is, is uh, uh, the prayer of Hannah. Do you remember this, Hannah, the mother of Samuel in the Old Testament? Uh, she too uh, didn't have a child. She was um, older than Mary, but hadn't produced a child even though she was married. She went to the tabernacle and prayed, Lord, give me a child. And she poured out her heart and then God granted her a child. And Hannah sang a song very much like this. So so that Old Testament song and prayer seems to be in Mary's head and she sort of weaves it into her own. But one writer uh, says that there are references in those 10 or so verses that Mary sings from the books of Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk and Zephaniah. Look at that. That's her, that's her prayer, her song. And she weaves in a dozen books of the Old Testament. Do you even know where Zephaniah is? <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? There's a beautiful phrase that same writer uses, that, that Mary goes into the storehouses of Scripture to express her praise. One of the ways that we get to be the kind of people who both magnify, worship the Lord and rejoice in him is by going to that storehouse of scripture and so filling our hearts with his word that if you like, it, it bubbles out of us. And later on in Jesus' ministry, he'll say that out of, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Right? The more you pour into yourself, that kind of bubbles back out. The more we pour scripture into ourselves, the more that is going to shape what comes out when we pray and when we worship. And that's why just as a couple of observations uh, in terms of our prayers and worship, that the Bible's prayers are meant to shape our prayers. The Bible's prayers are meant to shape our prayers. When you come along to church on a Sunday, when you listen to whoever's praying at the front lead, or when we read or, or sing some of the Psalms, I wonder if they ever feel strange to you. In a sense, they're meant to. 
Okay, the, the prayers that we have in, in our corporate worship service are not meant to be just the same as the kind of prayers we'd pray at home uh, on our own, uh, quietly uh, in a corner. Now, the, the Bible sets out at various points, I mean, mostly in the Psalms, the 150 of them, but also peppered throughout the New Testament, sets out various prayers for us, which are, are kind of models. And therefore, it's, it's right and it's helpful that, that at least when we began to gather together in that, that cor- corporate worship, that they have become the pattern for our prayers. The Psalms were given not as a private prayer book for people to sit at home with, but as a prayer book for the people of God gathered together. So if the, the prayers from the front of church, if I can put it that way, sound a, a bit odd, it's because we're trying to pray like that. It doesn't mean we have to pray like that on our own, although the idea, of course, is that we're shaped more and more by the prayers of Scripture. But, but it certainly doesn't mean that you have to be able to use language like Mary in order to pray to God. No, when Jesus speaks about prayer, he, he, he basically says, look, you come to your Father and you start speaking. Okay, so this is not a, it's not to undermine the idea that we just speak to God in prayer. But it is to say that our prayers increasingly are meant to be patterned uh, on the prayers of Scripture. And it's the same with our songs. Uh, Although verse 46 says, Mary said, it's structured like a song. Uh, The Bible's songs are meant to shape our songs. One of the things we tried to start doing here at Christchurch since we began a, a year and a half or two ago is sing some of the psalms. And that is that was new to almost all of us, I think. And I wonder what you feel when we sing some of those psalms. How do they compare to singing modern songs? So the song we began the service with is a version of Psalm 100. How does that feel compared to singing just much more sort of up-to-date style music or Christian songs? If you find one of them weird, or if you find they don't really match up, we've got to ask the question, which one's the problem with? It's not going to be with the ones that God wrote, is it? God has given us 150 songs in the Bible, at least. Uh, The Holy Spirit wrote them. So if we find that we don't like the the taste of them, we don't like the style of them, the problem is not going to be with them, but with our taste buds. Uh, If you've got children, uh, you'll know that left to their own devices, they will happily eat nothing but pizza, chocolate, crisps, ice cream, biscuits. And honestly, I don't think my children would, if I, if I just gave them free access to the cupboard, that's all they would eat. Okay, at no point would they wander over and say, Daddy, have you got any broccoli? Got any carrots? Now you have to train them to have a taste for these things that are good for them. Just because something tastes good doesn't necessarily mean it is good for us. Well, so too, with, with a lot of the, the songs that we sing, we naturally gravitate, I suspect, especially in 2019, to the kind of songs that, that are like the kind of songs we're listening to you know, on our computer, on the radio, whatever. The kind of Christian style, Christian versions of modern music. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're the best kind of songs for us, the kind of songs that God has given us to sing. And much of the modern Christian music is incredibly different to the Psalms. And at the very least, that should give us pause. I'm not saying it's all wrong. Okay, we do sing modern songs here at least when I'm not on the piano, um, we do sing modern music. But, but the, if you like, for a healthy diet, the main food surely has to be the kind of God songs that God has given. Uh, Mary's joy, her worship, which expresses itself in song, 
is fueled by her deep knowledge of Scripture, the storehouses of Scripture uh, that she's fed at uh, over her 15, 16 years uh, of life. Her spirituality, in other words, her, her Christian life rests on the foundation of Scripture. That is what leads her to joy and worship. I was speaking with someone about a fortnight ago, in fact, on a, on a summer camp, so no one, from, uh, no one from Leeds at all. And I was just chatting to him about, you know, he's a teenager, he's a Christian, I've been a Christian for as long as he can remember. I was just chatting to him about his, his spiritual life, you know, how, how are things going for you? What, what do you find helps you on as a Christian? Uh, what feeds you? He talked about various things. I said, well, do you ever read the Bible? He said, no, I'm not really a Bible person, I'm a worship person. Uh, for me, it's about music more than the scriptures. And he talked about some of these events he'd been to, huge crowds, uh, incredibly impressive music, musicians, sort of how uplifting they were for him. And I find that fuels him much more than the Bible. So he's kind of put the Bible to the side. Well, again, there's nothing wrong with big Christian conventions and conferences, but if our spirituality rests on the kind of experience you only really have if you're singing absolutely kind of kicking music with an amazing band and then it's incredibly shallow, isn't it? Last night in, in Round Hay Park, the last two nights in Round Hay Park, Ed Sheeran uh, has sung to just thousands and thousands of people. It's kept us up all night living just around the corner. And you just watch little video clips of it, and there's a huge buzz. Okay, it's people sing along with him. The music's, well, if you're into Ed Sheeran, the music's excellent. It's very well produced. Uh, the crowds are kind of roaring and cheering, and there's a real sense of euphoria. But that's not deep joy, is it? It's a passing experience. Uh, to have this kind of deep joy uh, that Mary expresses, uh, we need actually to be fed by the word of God. For the first few hundred years of the church's life, there were no instruments, for example, in, in uh, worship services. You know that? It's hard to know exactly when they came in. Best guess seems to be about the seventh century. Would you have been able to survive as a Christian with no instruments? Would you ever go to a church that didn't have instruments? Now, we have instruments, I don't think they're wrong. But I'm just trying to get back to the same point time and time again, that, that, that so much of our spiritual life, so much of what we look for as joyful worship is defined by our cultural experiences rather than by, rather than by Scripture. It's the Bible and the songs of the Bible, the prayers of the Bible that fuel Mary's joy. But there's more than that. A second thing as we head to a close. It's not simply that this song is, is peppered through uh, with the Old Testament songs. It's also that Mary's reflecting deeply on the gospel and the great reversal that God brings. Uh, do you notice as we uh, read it through that almost the entire song is about God raising up one group and casting down another? I mean, Mary herself is a nobody. Verse 48, he has looked on me, the humble estate of his servant, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. I'm just a peasant girl, and yet from now on everyone's going to call me blessed. I'm going to be the, the mother of the Messiah. She's not boasting, but she's marvelling that God has come and decided that his son is going to be born, not to a princess in a palace, but to a peasant. And she moves quickly from her own personal experience to, to, the, to what God is doing on the stage of world, world history. Look at God opposes. God opposes the proud. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
Okay, the, the proud think themselves to be something, you know, I think I'm a big deal. I'm kind of a big deal around here. God has scattered them, cast them down. I think later in the, the gospel, of the, remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee comes into the temple and says, I thank you that I'm not like that man. Well, the proud are scattered. The Pharisee goes home not right with God. Not just the proud, but the powerful. Verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. It's not those with earthly power who end up in God's kingdom, but rather the nobodies. Again, later in Luke's gospel, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, look, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy's a big deal. He is powerful, but he goes away empty-handed because he will not bow the knee to Christ. The proud are opposed, the powerful are opposed, those with possessions, verse 40, 53, sorry, are opposed. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Again, Jesus will tell a parable just a, a year or two later into his ministry, it's about 30 years later, is it, into his ministry, uh, of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the beggar outside, the rich man? He doesn't even get a name, the rich man. And every day the rich man walks past this poor beggar Lazarus and just leaves him be. And when they die, who is it that enters heaven? Well, it's Lazarus, the nobody, and the rich man is cast, starving into hell. So he opposes the proud, the powerful, those with possessions. He raises up the humble, verse 52. He's exalted those of humble estate. The hungry, verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things. And the helpless, verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our fathers. God had always promised, right from the days of Abraham, back in Genesis 12, that he would come to this particular people, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, and rescue them. They were a nobody nation. They weren't, they didn't have a seat on the kind of world council of the United Nations. They were a tiny people, helpless, constantly being beaten up by the big, strong Egyptians and Babylonians and Assyrians, but God came and rescued them, the helpless. What's the point of Mary's song? Well, well she, she's singing, if you like, of this great gospel reversal. Our world looks like it blesses the strong, the powerful, those with possessions, those who are somebodies. But Jesus says, no, God's way is completely opposite to that. Think of the way he came to rescue. When God came to earth, he could have come in glory, couldn't he? He could have come with a retinue of angels. All these heavenly beings we, we read about when we, the curtains of heaven are pulled back and we get a glimpse in, but he doesn't. He comes as the son of Mary. <coughs> He comes as a nobody. It's the son of God, and yet he's walking around Bethlehem, Nazareth, Galilee, places that no one at the time would have heard of. And more than that, when his ministry begins and he starts preaching that, that he is the door to eternal life, what, what happens to him? He's stripped naked and crucified. You could not see anything that looked weaker, more ridiculous, less powerful, less impressive than Jesus at his crucifixion. Yet that is the moment that he is saving the world. That is the moment that everything is being turned upside down. If you want to find eternal life, forgiveness, salvation, you wouldn't go to Caesar in his palace at that moment, but you go to Christ on the cross. And then, of course, the reversal does come. Three days later, Jesus is raised up. He's looked weak. He's looked humble, hungry, helpless. But he is taken up to glory. Uh, one day, the reversal comes. Now, interestingly, Mary speaks as if these things have all happened. You see, it's all past tense. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. Verse 52, 
verse 52, he has brought down. She's speaking as if these things have already happened. But as, at the time she speaks, they haven't. Uh, she's looking forward ultimately, I think, to that last day when God comes and writes the world. When he gathers all his people in to glory and casts all those who've stood against him away to eternal judgment. But Mary is so full of faith that she can speak about the things that are still to happen as if they're already done. Her faith is that strong. And again, that is why she's able to rejoice now. Her own situation wasn't, well, it wasn't brilliant. She was walking around claiming to be a pregnant virgin bearing the son of God Almighty. Can you imagine? We're sort of used to it now because we sing the Christmas carols. Can you imagine what that was like for her? Imagine what it's like to go up to someone and say, look, you know, friend down the street, look, I'm, I'm pregnant. What are they going to say? Oh, no, what's happening? You know, what have you done? No, no, it's all right. It's God's child. Her immediate situation, she isn't wealthy, she isn't powerful. She's going to get a lot of, well, frankly, stigma from the community around her for being a pregnant, unmarried young woman. And yet she's still able to rejoice. She still delights to praise God, her saviour. Why? Because although for her salvation hasn't arrived yet, she knows for certain it will. So however much of a mess life around looks, and she's going to have to walk through real tragedy, she's going to weep as she sees her son crucified, she knows that the ending will turn out right for those who put their trust in God. She's a person of faith, and that's what leads her to sing. Do you remember last week, uh, Zachariah, when he got told that he was going to be the father of John the Baptist, he wouldn't believe because his wife was so old. He just wouldn't believe. And so what was the punishment? Zechariah was struck silent until John was born. His unbelief led to silence. Mary's belief leads to singing. When we, when we understand that God will do to the world what he did to Christ, that is, he will take what is weak-looking, despised, rejected, and broken and raised glory. When we understand that will happen to the world as well and to God's people, we're able to rejoice even when the circumstances around us are not pleasant, even when we feel that we are the humble, the hungry, the helpless. And incidentally, if although this passage is not saying that God never saves anyone who's wealthy or never saves anyone who's been a king or powerful, if we do have some of these things, power, possessions they are a danger because we start trusting in them and thinking we're okay rather than casting yourself on God and his mercy the point is for now we live we're meant to live well really as Elizabeth does you see verse 43 you read over it but it's an extraordinary verse Elizabeth says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to, to me? Who's the Lord she's speaking about there, verse 43? Well, it's Jesus. Where is Jesus? Jesus is in Mary's womb. Elizabeth calls this perhaps two-month-old baby my Lord. Again, to human eyes, it looks ridiculous. My Lord? That? That? Okay, Mary probably isn't even, I'm no expert on pregnancy, but she's probably not even showing yet, is she? And yet Elizabeth can look and say, that is my Lord. To the world, ridiculous. But Elizabeth is full of joy because she's certain of what God will come and do. For now, 
we're called to have joy, to worship God, even though we're living this side of the resurrection. Glory hasn't yet come. How do you have joy? Even when God doesn't seem to be acting spectacularly? How do you trust that he will do the impossible? You feed yourself with God's word and you understand that this is the way he always works. He starts with the weak, the outcast, the suffering, the weeping, and then he takes them to glory. Uh, what are you trying to, what kind of life are you trying to live now? A resurrection life or a cross-shaped life? Until Christ returns, the only life for a Christian is this cross-shaped life of faith, not in what we see, not in what the world esteems, but what God has promised he will do. Uh, let's pray that he fills us with that kind of faith. Our Father God, we praise you that you are a God who can do all things. With you, there is nothing that is impossible. We confess that we see the attraction of riches of this world. We see the attraction of storing up for ourselves great possessions to give ourselves great power. We confess that we become very proud, even though everything we have is a gift from you. So, Father, kill off those desires in us, we pray. And instead, give us uh, the faith that Mary exhibits here to trust that one day you will reverse this world's order, uh, that one day you will raise up and bring to glory and eternal joy and rest uh, those who live crucified lives on this earth. And, Father, we pray that you would make us, therefore, people not just of duty, but of delight, people who rejoice to sing your praises uh, whatever the feelings uh, that well up within us, whatever the circumstances that surround us, would we be people who truly say with Mary that our soul magnifies the Lord and we rejoice in God, our Saviour. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.